Hello, you're listening to Global Questions, the podcast breaking down international news and politics. I'm Joshua. And I'm Kelly. This is The Wrap-Up, your fortnightly dose of news from around the world. The first wrap-up for season six. Kelly, since we last spoke, I think a couple of months ago, so much has changed in the global landscape. We've had a full-scale war break out in Europe, there's been unprecedented international sanctions, and really it just feels like we're living in a different kind of world now. It certainly is, Josh, which means we have a lot to talk about this episode. We're going to be talking about the recent fallout of the Russian and Ukraine war taking place in the UN. We've also got some really interesting and different stories about corporate espionage, the FIFA World Cup, and yet another celebrity politician crashing and burning. Yeah, there's a lot to unpack, so let's jump straight into our first story. I want to take you live to the United Nations in New York. We're getting some breaking news out of there. The General Assembly has voted and has just suspended Russia from the Human Rights Council over allegations that Russian soldiers killed civilians while those soldiers were retreating from areas around Kyiv. Josh, as you and the listeners may have heard, last Friday, Russia was officially suspended from the UN's Human Rights Council. Draft resolution. A-ES-11-L4 is adopted. This makes Russia the first permanent member of the UN Security Council to be permanently kicked off a UN body. Interestingly, there was a little bit of confusion in the General Assembly as the vote occurred. Just like an employee might try to quit before they're fired, Russia actually tried to announce it was resigning from the Human Rights Council moments after they were suspended. The UK ambassador then tried to clarify things. We would like to seek urgent clarification from the Russian delegation as to what precisely they just said in their statement. And the Ukrainian ambassador criticized Russia for its behavior. You know, you do not submit your resignation after you are fired. And that's exactly what happened to the Russian Federation. Wow, with Russia playing those games, is it fair to say that this is just a political move with little relevance outside of the UN? Or do you think it'll have a positive impact for Ukrainian civilians on the ground? That is a great question, Josh, and I wondered the same thing. As the Human Rights Council is currently investigating violations committed in Ukraine, this avoids any potential accusations of conflicts of interest down the road. Those investigations will be key evidence for any war crimes prosecutions in the future. But other than that, it is largely a symbolic move as the Human Rights Council doesn't have the power to make binding decisions or stop the war. So if the Human Rights Council is largely toothless then, is there anything else the United Nations can do to stop the war in Ukraine? It's a very complex question because the Security Council does hold most of the power at the UN. It can authorise military action, economic sanctions, or refer an investigation to the International Criminal Court. But... As you know, Russia is a permanent member of the Security Council and has the power to veto any vote. So that renders the Security Council powerless in this situation. 
And President Volodymyr Zelensky of Ukraine has called out the Security Council on this very issue when he spoke to the council via video call last Wednesday. President Zelensky delivered another fiery speech, this time asking why the United Nations has failed to act and in the face of new evidence of Russian war crimes. Mm, some pretty scathing remarks there, but likely very, very well deserved. So tell me, do you think it would be possible to do something similar and remove Russia from the Security Council, just like it was removed from the Human Rights Council? There is currently no way to remove Russia under the UN Charter unless the General Assembly votes to remove Russia from the UN entirely. But that vote has to be recommended by the Security Council in the first place, which means that Russia would effectively have to approve its own removal. Yeah, I can't see any world in which that happens. So what happens next then? So given that the UN can't do much, it's likely that individual prosecutions and victim compensation through the International Criminal Court will be the most likely next step. In fact, the ICC has already opened an investigation into Russia's invasion of Ukraine upon a referral by 39 countries. Reuters has learned that investigators from the International Criminal Court in The Hague are en route to the region. ICC prosecutor Karim Khan told Reuters his office would be examining possible war crimes, crimes against humanity, and genocide. As a result, it's likely that these investigations will be very long and complex. However, that means that any justice for the Ukrainian people is likely to be a very long way off. Breaking news out of Pakistan. Prime Minister Imran Khan is no longer the prime minister. He's just been voted out of office after a motion of no confidence was brought against him. As you just heard there, Kelly, there was some pretty big news in Pakistan over the weekend. Imran Khan, the cricket legend and prime minister of Pakistan, was pushed out of power after the country's parliament voted to remove him. The resolution for vote of no confidence against Mr. Imran Khan the Prime Minister of Islamic Republic of Pakistan has been passed by a majority of the total membership of the National Assembly. And it's fair to say Imran Khan didn't go quietly. He gave a live speech on television in which he claimed that the United States had rigged the vote in order to overthrow his government. He asked his supporters to hit the streets and to protest, and they did. In Lahore, PTI workers and supporters descended on the Liberty Chalk protest march where slogans against foreign interference were heard and calls were made to reinstate Imran Khan to the Prime Minister's office. So how did we get to this point? I remember when Imran Khan was elected in 2018, he was one of the most popular politicians in Pakistan. Yeah, he indeed was. But over the last four years, things have really changed. And they've changed for two reasons. So first, his popularity among Pakistani voters has declined dramatically. Corruption has increased since Imran Khan was elected, and the cost of living in Pakistan has soared. Pakistan's inflation has reached a five-year high, and the country is reeling under the pressure as food and fuel prices spiral out of control. In fact, food prices have risen by nearly 30% each year for the last three years. The second reason is a little bit more complicated. So since Pakistan was established, 
its military has largely controlled the country's politics, and generally, the candidate that's backed by the military wins the election. In Pakistan, the generals have always pulled the political strings, but talk to human rights activists, and they agree that the degree of meddling in this election is unprecedented. And originally Khan had the military support, but over the last few years, that relationship has soured a bit and it seems as if Pakistan's generals have turned on him too. So as a result of all of this, last week, members of Khan's own government decided to defect to the opposition. At least 24 lawmakers from the ruling party, Prime Minister Imran Khan's party, are leaving him. They've threatened to vote against the Prime Minister, 24. This meant that Khan no longer had a majority in parliament. And so the opposition announced that it was going to hold a vote to force him to resign as PM. And here's where the story gets crazy. In order to stop the vote from taking place, Khan decided to dissolve the parliament altogether. There has been a new twist to the turmoil Pakistan's Prime Minister Imran Khan has now called for early elections, pushing the country into a deeper political and a constitutional crisis. Wow, and how did the opposition respond to that? Well, they challenged the decision in Pakistan's Supreme Court, and after a tense wait, the court ruled the dissolution was illegal. It ordered the parliament to meet again and to hold the vote on Khan's future as PM, which, as we can see, didn't turn out too well for him. So with all of that background, why is Khan claiming the United States was behind the vote to remove him? That's a pretty big allegation. Yeah, it is. But, you know, it seems that Khan is just trying to distract from his own failures here and to rile up his supporters by playing into anti-US sentiment, which runs deep inside Pakistan. Is there any truth to his claim? No, there's not really. And while it is safe to say that the US isn't happy with Pakistan, as Imran Khan has allied the country with China and Russia in recent years, there's absolutely no evidence that Biden was plotting to overthrow Pakistan's government. So what can we expect next? Well, Pakistan's parliament will vote on a new PM on Tuesday morning our time. So check your news feeds. A decision may have been announced already. And it's very likely that the head of the opposition, Shabazz Sharif, will become the new PM. And he's the brother of Pakistan's former prime minister, Nawaz Sharif, and both have been accused of corruption. But look, regardless of who wins, this whole saga shows just how unstable Pakistani politics is. The country has experienced three coups in recent decades, and not a single PM in Pakistan's history has ever served out their full term. That turmoil has prevented corruption and poverty from being addressed within Pakistan, and it also has global implications. Because you've got to remember that Pakistan is one of only nine countries that have nuclear weapons, and it's also strategically located, bordering Iran, Afghanistan, China, and Russia. So turmoil in Pakistan really threatens the economic and political stability of the whole region. So there's a lot riding on the new Pakistani government, whatever it looks like. Look at the space here for Levetsi. Levetsi. Flags up! Flags up! 
Josh, putting you on the spot here. Are you a fan of soccer? And how much do you know about the upcoming FIFA World Cup? Well, look, Kelly, for long-time listeners of The Wrap-Up, they'll know that my sporting knowledge is best described as dismal. So to answer your question, no, I'm not really a fan. But tell me more about it. Well, in seven months' time, the FIFA World Cup will be hosted by Qatar. Qatar was awarded the rights to host the game 12 years ago in 2010. The winner to organise the 2022 FIFA World Cup is Qatar. Since then, despite spending $300 billion on building new stadiums and preparing for the World Cup, there have been repeated calls from around the world to boycott the event. We start with a remarkable exchange at the FIFA Congress where the legacy of staging this year's World Cup in Qatar was once again brought into question. Really? Why is that? Well, despite being a country rich with oil and natural gas, Qatar has a shortage of labourers, which means that a large proportion of their workforce are actually migrant workers. Most of the stadiums have been built by these migrant workers who have paid a very real human cost for the FIFA World Cup. Amnesty International found many workers living 10 or 15 in one small room with no air conditioning in temperatures reaching 45 degrees Celsius. Between the blocks, there's overflowing sewage and rotting trash. Many of the migrants were also denied their wages. Even if they wanted to return home, they can't. So up until very recently, Qatar's laws for migrant workers meant that they needed their employer's permission to switch jobs, return home, or even open a bank account. You can imagine the amount of restriction on someone's independence with these laws. And then there's the problem of the weather. Migrant workers are often forced to work in extreme heat, which exposes them to heat-related illness or even death. In fact, 6,750 migrant workers have died in Qatar since the World Cup was awarded. Now, according to reports, an average of 12 migrant workers died every week in the period between 2011 and 2020. The most number of migrant workers who have died in Qatar have come from India, followed by Nepal, Bangladesh and Pakistan. That is truly mind-numbing, Kelly. Do we know how many of those deaths have been linked to World Cup construction projects themselves? Unfortunately, it's unknown. Officially, only 37 people have died while building the stadiums, but the real number is likely to be much higher than that. But that's not the only thing that Qatar is under scrutiny for, though, is it? No, that's right, Josh. So Qatar is also being criticised for its stance on LGBTQI plus rights. So homosexuality is illegal and Qatar has indicated that it will confiscate any rainbow flags during the World Cup. That does raise a lot of questions about the safety of any LGBTQI plus people or players who are planning to travel to Qatar for the World Cup. It just makes you wonder why FIFA awarded Qatar the World Cup in the first place, let alone why they didn't try to address these issues at some point in the last 12 years. Very good point, Josh. And Qatar's bid to host the World Cup has been controversial from the start. Senior US officials say Qatar bribed FIFA in order to win the rights. And those bribes are part of the reason why FIFA may have overlooked these issues in the first place. So with the World Cup now so close, what's being done to try and change things on the ground? 
Well, various sporting organizations have been calling for FIFA and Qatar to actually repeal these anti-LGBT laws, while the players themselves have also been protesting. For example, in the World Cup qualifier match between Germany and Iceland, the German team wore shirts that spelled out the letters of human rights. Prominent English soccer players have also indicated that they are planning some sort of message about women's rights, LGBTQ plus rights, and migrant workers. Interesting. So, have any countries said they'll actually boycott the cup, though? Not yet. There is a lot of pressure on countries like Germany, Denmark, and Norway to pull out of the tournament. Those calls have been ignored so far, but there is still some time until the competition begins. And I think this all just goes to show the World Cup is worth paying attention to, even if you're not a fan, because of the widespread implications it has for diplomacy worldwide. Kelly, our final story takes place in Taiwan. Now, buckle in, because it's a fascinating blend of espionage and spying, and it actually has massive implications for the world too. You've clearly saved the best story till last, Josh. So what's this all about? Well, let me answer your question, Kelly, with another question. How much do you know about semiconductors? I don't even know what that means, Josh. So not much. Well, they're better known by their other name, microchips. They're the chips that can be found in almost every electronic item we use. From your iPhones, your fridge, your air filter. The most advanced supercomputers, the most basic toaster ovens. What's turning on your indicators? What's turning on your radio in your car? That's a chip. More than 100 billion semiconductors are in use around the world right now, which is equivalent to the number of stars in our galaxy. So I think it's safe to say that life as we know it wouldn't be possible without a massive supply of semiconductors. That is huge. For something so important, we certainly take it for granted. We do, and this is where things get complicated. You see, there are only three companies in the world that make advanced semiconductors, and 92% of those semiconductors are manufactured by one of those companies, TSMC. And guess where TSMC is located? It's located in Taiwan. So that means that most electronic items depend on one Taiwanese factory. And you can probably already see why this might be a bit of a problem. China has again said it will, quote, reunite Taiwan with the mainland as tensions ramp up further between Beijing and the self-governing island. Chinese President Xi Jinping told a Communist Party gathering that such a move would happen peacefully. Taiwan has responded by saying it's a sovereign nation and that its people will decide their future. Over the last year, China has ramped up tensions with Taiwan and senior US officials are now predicting China will invade in the next five years. And it's thought that a war in Taiwan would force TSMC to stop producing semiconductors, which would impact almost everyone in the world. Without TSMC, you will not be able to have chips in your iPhones and you will not have chips for your uh, F-35 fighter jets that the US flies. So it will be a very different world without TSMC in it. Entire industries would close down, leading to backlogs of more than a year for a new phone, a new computer, or even a new car. Understandably, that's got a lot of governments worried. 
And so in the last few months, China, the US, Europe, and South Korea have announced plans to build their own semiconductor factories. The European Union has set out an ambitious plan to produce one-fifth of the world's semiconductors by the end of this decade. South Korea is working to build its own infrastructure for the entire chip-making process, which will drastically reduce its reliance on foreign sourcing. We're investing aggressively in areas like semiconductors and batteries. That's what they're doing and others. So must we. It's hard to see why they would not have anticipated that this would be a problem earlier. So all these countries are trying to reduce reliance on Taiwan and outcompete each other? Yeah, exactly. And this is where the espionage and spying comes into it. So in order to gain the upper hand, China has been infiltrating Taiwan's semiconductor factories and spying on them. Taiwan has accused China of waging economic war against its technology sector by stealing information and poaching engineers. For example, Chinese companies have impersonated Taiwanese firms to try to trick people into handing over blueprints and confidential information. As a result, last week, Taiwan's spy agency announced that it will investigate 100 Chinese companies suspected of spying. Taiwan is taking this really seriously. Yeah, they are. And they're taking it seriously because there's a lot at stake for Taiwan in this global race for semiconductor supremacy. The industry is, first of all, responsible for the majority of Taiwan's wealth. And Taiwan's role in semiconductor manufacturing has also given it a lot of clout internationally. It's part of the reason the US and Western countries have stood up for Taiwan. They don't want to see the industry damaged or under Chinese control after a takeover of Taiwan. But, you see, if other countries start producing better semiconductors than Taiwan, then the island's global importance may start to fade, which would only make it more vulnerable to a Chinese takeover. So there's a lot riding on Taiwan's semiconductor industry, not only for Taiwan itself, but also for the rest of the world. Well, that brings us to the end of this fortnight's edition of The Wrap-Up. Stay tuned because next week will be the first episode of our in-depth season on technology. Rhiannon will be chatting to some exciting guests about global surveillance and how new spyware is changing politics, whistleblowing and free speech. Until then, follow our Instagram page at global.questions for news updates, quizzes and bonus content. You can also get in touch with us and suggest an episode topic via our website. All the links are in the episode description below. We'll see you in a fortnight. Bye.